Today's episode is brought to you by Will Betke Brunswick's A Pros and Cons List for Strong Feelings, an unexpected and poignant debut graphic memoir about a close-knit family approaching loss and the wonder and joy they create along the way, says Maya Kobabe. The author was working on a mathematics degree, playing on a hockey team, and slowly coming out as trans and non-binary when their mom was diagnosed with cancer. This book weaves memories from the author's childhood with scenes from the last few months of their mother's life into a tender story of acceptance, care, and love. The heavy moments are lightened by the portrayal of the family as penguins, with friends and strangers as a flock of other birds. But the story is deeply human. A pros and cons list for Strong Feelings is out now from Tin House. Before today's conversation with Amakojo, I want to talk about the outsized effect she has had on the podcast for many years now. In many ways, you could say she has been a guiding spirit of the show. The show has changed slowly but profoundly over time. If you leap back a decade, you will discover episodes that were only 28 minutes long with much, much shorter questions. You might notice other things, too. When I listen back, I realize how differently I edit now versus then. And at the beginning, I was only doing fiction, then slowly moving into nonfiction. Then I stuck my toe into more narrative poetry before fully engaging with poetry and hybrid and uncategorizable work, which at one time was truly a foreign horizon, but now is at the center of my heart. It's a strange thing, a vulnerable thing, to grow and change in public this way. But pretty quickly and pretty early on, I realized that having a show like this, the act of curating a roster of a limited number of writers who could come on each year was both a way to define what the show was, and in many ways was also sort of a form of self-expression of what I was interested in, but that there was also a responsibility that came with it, that part of the show's ever-evolving shape would happen through listening, not through expressing. The yearly Vita count was an early inspiration. Vita, the organization that assessed the gender breakdown of what various magazines and journals published each year. And it was always interesting to see how each magazine responded or didn't respond when a mirror was held up to what they were doing, who they were publishing, who they were reviewing. This certainly was an early model for me for self-assessment. And I would also say that when Tin House approached me in 2018 about the possibility of adopting the show, it was their own response to the Vita count that did factor into that decision for me. Back in 2010, around the time Vita started, Tin House Magazine published around twice as many men as women, which sounds bad, but when you look at a lot of the other publications, uh, New York Review of Books published five times as many men as women, nearly 85% men at the time. Harper's and London Review of Books was a three-to-one ratio. But even if Tin House looked better in comparison, they nevertheless took the count results much more to heart. 
And by the time they approached me in, in the final year of the magazine, the gender ratio had entirely flipped. Not to mention how profoundly Lance Cleland has transformed the summer and winter writing workshops over the past decade. And Tin House has been a godsend in many other ways. If not for them, we wouldn't have transcripts. We wouldn't have the merchandise we use to entice you to support the show. And of course, when I told you that I was taking a leap by leaving my day job to try this as my full-time gig, I said this would only work if you caught me when I leaped. And you did. You have. And really, it is the listener supporters of Between the Covers who I'm most beholden to. But along the way, there were many unexpected acts of generosity. Former guest Jesse Ball reaching out and offering me three boxes of an out-of-print co-written book of his, which was for a long time the primary and only thing I offered for three years, I think, before Tin House showed up. That one gesture was a lifesaver, a bridge between finding myself as a podcaster with a growing audience but with growing costs to now. But there have been some other moments too, and none more than when Ama Kojo reached out many, many years ago now. She'd been listening to an episode, one she was enjoying a great deal, and then near the end, she felt like the conversation no longer envisioned her as one of its intended listeners, that my white guest was addressing me as the representative of an imagined white audience. I'm grateful that Alma thought I might want to hear her experience, that I might want to hear ways, as someone herself who conducts social justice and anti-racism workshops for many organizations, that I could potentially do better. She reached out, shared the ways she felt like I had tried to get the conversation back on the rails, the ways I had instinctively perhaps tried to broaden the address of the conversation again, and she suggested some further things. This was all great, but what I really remember and am moved by is really the spirit of her engagement with me. And even though we didn't really talk often after that, Alma became in my mind's eye a crucial part of my intended audience as if she were sitting in the front row of every conversation with her incredible, warm, life-giving energy. It was only when I interviewed this year Elaine Castillo, where Elaine uses the terms of the expected reader and unexpected reader in relation to her discussions of how to read and how to critique the writing we're reading, that I realized that the question of expected audience and unexpected audience forever changed for me with Alma reaching out, the way she reached out, the way her spirit has hovered over the show, and the way knowing she's listening has become a huge part of how I listen when I interview. So it's with great pleasure to have Alma on the show today. I always knew I would love this conversation, but I wasn't prepared for just how much I would adore her new collection, one that feels like it emerges from a similar spirit to what I've described. You will soon see that to learn about Amakojo, 
is to learn about the people who inspire her too. That as we learn about Amma's poetics, you will also step-by-step be learning about other incredible Black women artists and scholars. Denise Murrell, Lorraine O'Grady, Simone Lee, and others. That her self-expression is also an indebtedness to others and a celebration of others. As usual, I've gone on too long, but as a final testimony to Ama Kojo before we moved to the conversation itself, similar to Dion Brand's contribution to the bonus audio archive, where Dion read from two books coming out in 2023, the fiction debut of poet Kinesia Lubrin's Code Noir and the much-anticipated book by Christina Sharp, Ordinary Notes, Ama offers a particularly generous contribution herself, providing three different approaches to writing ekphrastic poetry, poetry engaged with visual art. She picks three examples of three strategies, a poem by Evie Shockley from her forthcoming 2023 collection, Suddenly We, a poem by Ama herself, and then a long poem from Terence Hayes from his forthcoming 2023 collection, so to speak. And she talks about each of them along the way. To learn how to subscribe to the bonus audio and about the other potential benefits of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Ama Kojo. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet Ama Kojo. Kojo received a BA in English from Brown University and an MFA in dance performance from Ohio State University, where she received the Presidential Fellowship, the graduate school's most prestigious award, and finally an MFA at NYU in creative writing, where she was a Rona Jaffe Graduate Fellow. Kojo has worked as Associate Director of Professional Development for the Dream Yard Art Center, an arts and social justice organization in the Bronx, and she has been the lead teaching artist of the Arts and Activism Program, the Action Project, a four-year art and activism program for high school-aged kids, as well as acting as a facilitator conducting anti-racism workshops for many organizations, 
ranging from the Met Museum and the Pratt Institute to the National Guild for Community Arts Education. As a poet, she is part of the Poets at the End of the World Collective. Five poets, Ama Kojo, Danika Kelly, Nicole Seeley, Evie Shockley, and Lyra Van Cleef Stefanen, who are influenced by the work and lives of Gwendolyn Brooks, Lucille Clifton, June Jordan, and Audre Lorde, to turn literary work into action. Kojo has been a Kaveh Kanem Fellow, a Callaloo Writers Workshop Fellow, the recipient of the 2017 Rona Jaffe Writers Award, the 2018 Lorraine Williams Poetry Prize, selected by Natasha Trethaway, a 2019 National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, among many others. Her work has been selected twice for Best American Poetry, and her chapbook, Blood of the Air, was winner of the 2019 Drinking Gourd Chapbook Poetry Prize from Northwestern University Press. Amakojo is here today for her much-anticipated and already much-loved debut full-length poetry collection, just out from Milkweed, called Bluest Nude, with starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and Booklist. Former U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith says of Bluest Nude, How beautifully seen, tended, and rendered are our many black lives under this poet's exquisite gaze. In appetite and loss, rage and praise, what animates these poems is a profound cherishing, an abiding, and yet at every turn surprising, love rushing out from the lush wilderness of Amakojo's rapturous imagination. Bluest Nude is an ecstatic encounter. Our current U.S. Poet Laureate, Ada Limon, adds, Sensual, sound-driven, and brimming with the necessary truth, the poems in Bluest Nude are pulsating with both grief and beauty. Wrought out of resurrection and reclaiming, these brilliant poems honor the mystery and legacy of the body. Kojo has written a true triumph of a debut that feels urgent and deeply human. Finally, National Book Award-winning poet Mary Shebist says, It is hard to find words for the fineness of Amakojo's poetry, its unabashed and luminous vibrancy. She unframes old myths about beauty and femininity and care to bring them intimately into the experience of the body, where she forges far more supple visions. Her language is so rich and resourceful that as it enlarges lyric possibilities, it also enlarges human ones. Never have I been so convinced that the desire to know oneself and the desire to be the agent of one's own radical self-making can be audacious and brilliant collaborators. Welcome to Between the Covers, Amakojo. Thank you, David Naiman. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Yes. <laughs> I've been thinking about this day for so long. Um, well, I want to start with the origin story of, or one of the origin stories of Bluest Nude. But first, I'd love to start with the origin of it as a book, or uh, the vision of a book, because this collection doesn't feel to me like a collection, insofar as it coheres in a way that feels like 
everything in it is singing together, which makes me imagine someone writing each poem with the whole in mind, with the, a book in mind. But I realized that it could be the opposite, that perhaps stumbling upon a vision after the poems are written, one might look back on already written poems and shape a book based on what one includes or what one excludes. But either way, there is, I think, a lot of uncanny cross-conversation between these poems, repeating motifs where I, I feel a cohesion the way I might with a Jory Graham book or a Nikki Finney book, um, which feel like poetry books to me, not poetry collections. So talk to us about how this book became book-like. Mm. <laughs> oh, it was all of that. It's so interesting because I can I can kind of see where I was. I was at this residency in Captiva, Florida. And I thought I was working towards a second collection. And then I just had this moment where I thought, wait, <laughs> what if what I thought would be my first full-length book, this pile of poems, and these newer poems that I've been written are actually a third thing. Mm. And I, I don't know, it, I, I had this, I guess maybe a pressure because I was um, wanting to share it with a reader, a trusted reader. And so I was like, well, let me see what happens. And then it felt like what you're saying, like all of these echoes I could just hear and see in that other pile um, with these newer poems that I've been writing that were really specifically in response to um, these questions of the Black feminine nude. But even I think when I was writing my thesis at NYU, Terrence Hayes, who's my thesis advisor, it's like, there's a lot of clothes. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of nakedness, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was like seeing something that I think was happening already. And then also kind of a burst of writing that was very intentional and had a clear objective and then bringing those together. Well, as you've said, much of this book is engaged with looking and seeing and questions of self-making in relation to both how we see and what we do with how we are seen. Um, and one of the primary modes of this is your engagement with visual art, the depictions of the black female nude which becomes a multifaceted act of scene. It's seen by the viewer of the art, but that seeing is a way of looking at what the artist is also seeing and how they are seeing what they're seeing. When you talk to Milkweed's creative director, Mary Austin's speaker, you foregrounded the experience of attending an exhibit in 2019 called Posing Modernity, the Black Model from Manet and Matisse to today as a seminal moment in the formation of this project. You, you get the sense from that conversation that this exhibition and what it inspires in you coalesces many things inside of you. And perhaps this could be another origin story for the book, but talk to us about Denise Murrell's uh, exhibit and why it's important in this journey uh, for Bluest Nude. There was this really incredible confluence of events. So I 
I decided to go to see this exhibition that my friend Anika Kelly told me about. It happened to be, I think, the last weekend that it was showing. And maybe a few days prior, there was like a Times article. So it was really packed. Um, and I was waiting for a friend because normally I'm early. <laughs> and so I was waiting and there were a couple of people who I think were tourists um, and they were trying to decide if they wanted to stay or go. And there was another person who came around us and it was like, I have these tickets to hear the curator, but I can't stay. Do you all want these tickets? So they took the tickets and then they decided they were going to go elsewhere and they gave me the tickets. Mm -hmm. And so me and my friend got to hear uh, Denise Morrell talk about the exhibition, which completely um, enthralled me, I think, in a way that I might not have been without hearing her talk about her process of research and these kind of critical questions that really resonated with me around who is this model and this Manet painting, Laura, like she went to Paris and, you know, was like looking in all these archives and really like this idea that there are so many stories that we actually assume we know that we don't know. So I had her with me as I went through the exhibition and, and I bought the catalog afterwards. And unlike most times when I buy a catalog, I read every single word and I like let it lead me to all these other places, including the Lorraine O'Grady essay, Olympia's Made. And I just was like, I don't know. I just abided with it for a really long time and it started to shape what I was writing in terms of poems. And so by the time that I sat down in that desk in Florida, that's what I really wanted to write towards. Um, so it was definitely a, a watershed, this experience. And also just being kind of in the company of someone who had decided Denise Morrell to change careers and later in her life and who, you know, this story that, that I've told this, like being in a room and seeing this painting and then seeing the professor kind of pass by it and asking herself, like, well, there's another figure in that painting besides this naked white woman, Olympia, there's someone else there. Who is she? That kind of quest that she made for herself and that it ended in this exhibition that was also um, kind of redesigned in Paris. I just was so admiring of that pursuit and, and I wanted to kind of pursue my own questions in response to what she had done. Well, I watched a video of, of Denise talking about the origin of her exhibition that it's 140 works exhibited that the exhibition was based on her doctoral thesis. Um, and as you say, it connects to this experience as a student where she was in an art history lecture and they're about to talk about Manet's Olympia and she's anticipating with great interest what the teacher will say about the black figure in the painting, the servant who's bringing flowers to the reclining white nude woman. And she's shocked that it isn't commented on at all as if she weren't even there. And what's interesting about the Manet to me is that unlike 
the Titian painting that inspired it, which includes servants, white servants, in the distant background. The black servant in Manet's painting, even though she's often referred to also as in the background, is actually right up against the edge of the bed where the reclining nude woman is. She's pretty much in the same horizontal plane at almost the same depth Mm -hmm. and is both given and takes up a considerable portion of the painting's space. She's prominently present, at least to my eye. And yet, T.J. Clark, the art historian, has recounted his friend's disbelief that in Clark's 1990 version of his book, The Painting of Modern Life, that he had written about the white woman on the bed for nearly 50 pages and hardly mentioned the black woman beside her. It, and then it's interesting, as, as you alluded to, also how Murel does this archival work in Manet's diaries to discover the name of the model f- for the servant, Laura, and the D'Orsay Museum changes the name of a painting from Negress to a portrait of Laura. But it's also interesting to look at the legacy of this painting, not only how it is inspired by previous paintings, um, but also the way it it sort of cascades forward. Manet's Olympia inspires Cezanne's A Modern Olympia, Magritte's Olympia, and perhaps most notably Basquiat's painting, Three Quarters of Olympia Minus the Servant. Um, What is your experience of, of looking at this painting of Manet's for you? Do you, do you see Mural's recovery of Laura, who on the one hand has been right there all along, and yet on another has been evacuated of all presence to the point that under this gaze, Lorraine O'Grady says that the servant is not a real person, but both a Jezebel and a Mammy. Knowing all of this and all this commentary and these, these, this archival work, Talk to us just a little bit about the ex- just the experience of standing before it for you. and What is your relationship to it? And, and what do you feel about Manet in relationship to it? Um, if we were to step behind all of the ways people have ignored the servant, what is your sense of Manet in relationship to the servant? So the painting Olympia was not actually a part of the Wallach Art Gallery Um, Harlem, New York exhibition. They couldn't borrow it, but it was a part of the Museum d'Orsay exhibition in Paris. And I was so obsessed with (laughs) this whole thing (laughs) that I went to Paris. So I was in um, basically London house sitting for a friend and I took the train for like one night and I went straight to the museum. And one of the very amazing and moving things that they did with the kind of redesign exhibition in Paris was rename paintings, as you mentioned. So um, there were other black models that had been researched and usually just their first names were found. And so when you went up to the drawing or painting, it would be named that black model's first name. And so you kind of wind your way and get to like the pinnacle of the exhibition, which is the painting referred to as Olympia and you see Laura and it's like, wow, <laughs> like really like, wow. Um, talk about an excavation and a, and a reclaiming. Um, 
And I think what Morel's research was, was trying to get at is that she is significant. I mean, it is a, a kind of racist white imagination that, that then kind of makes her insignificant. <laughs> but there was so much going on with the dress and like what she's, what she's trying to say is like, this was actually a symbol of, of modernity, like this particular figure and the way that Manet um, imagined and painted her, uh, that it's as significant as the other elements of, of what's going on in that painting. So I felt like lots of things were possible having that experience of walking up to that painting and seeing it, I think, temporarily um, renamed. It just was a really uh, evocative and moving um, experience and a beautifully curated um, exhibition. I was hoping we could hear the Lorraine O'Grady epigraph to your book and then the poems that are facing each other on seeing and being seen and two girls bathing. Yeah. To name ourselves rather than be named, we must first see ourselves. So long unmirrored in our true selves, we may have forgotten how we look. On seeing and being seen, I don't like being photographed. When we kissed at a wedding, the night grew long and luminous. You unhooked my bra. A photograph passes for proof, Sontag says, that a given thing has happened. Or you leaned back to watch as I eased the straps from my shoulders, hooks and eyes. Right now, my breasts are too tender to be touched. Their breasts were horrifying, Elizabeth Bishop writes. Tell her someone wanted to touch them. I am touching the photograph of my last seduction. It is as slick as a magazine page, as dark as a street darkened by rain. When I want to remember something beautiful, instead of taking a photograph, I close my eyes. I watched as you covered my nipple with your mouth. Desire made you beautiful. I closed my eyes. Tonight, I am alone in my tenderness. There is nothing in my hand except a certain grasping. In my mind's eye, I am stroking your hair with damp fingertips. This is exactly how it happened. On the lit up hotel bed, I remember thinking, my body is a lens I can look through with my mind. Two girls bathing. I'm 13 when my cousin teaches me how to bathe. We carry buckets from auntie's kitchen, limping to the pendulum of water swinging. Undressed, we stand side by side on the concrete floor. Carol's hands don't handle like my mother's did, propping me in the bathtub beside my brothers, constructing an assembly line of our limbs 
as she lathered and polished us clean. This was before boys became unlike girls, before our mother, whose flesh we ate, whose nipples we cracked, was exiled from us. Carol instructs me wordlessly. In deliberate movements, she rubs across her torso's cross and sweeps beneath each breast. I mimic her gestures, tipping the bucket slightly so as not to dirty the water. I watch how easily she bears her supple body. She wears her nakedness like it's been woven from air. Carol points to a spot on my back. I resist the urge to hide my chest. Tucked inside her is what hangs from my brothers like pockets turned inside out. I tilt my head like a mirror, envy the gold beads hugging her waist and bring the washcloth to where I've missed, not knowing when and from whom I learned to be ashamed. We've been listening to Ama Koja read from her debut poetry collection from Milkweed, Bluest Nude. Already here, I feel like just in these two poems, we see a remarkable amount of conversation, um, which only hints at the ways this happens across the book, I think. But the two ways of seeing, in, in the first poem, the line, when I want to remember something beautiful, instead of taking a photograph, I close my eyes. And the ways the second poem, eyes wide open, is about seeing oneself by looking at the body of, of one's cousin, where the cousin becomes the mirror. Um, and the horrific breasts in Elizabeth Bishop's eyes, quoted from her poem where she's looking at naked black women in a National Geographic. And then the way the lover in the poem covers the nipple, uh, perhaps love protecting the breast from that sort of sight. Uh, perhaps in the same way you might close your eyes rather than take a photograph of something. Talk to us about nudity, beyond the nude as a, a model in art. Nudity and nakedness are, are a big part of this collection. There's something about the question, um, or I guess a series of questions about, what do I see when I look at myself and my naked body in the mirror? And even kind of alone, Am I ever alone? <laughs> so like, I guess it's about what are the things that are shaping my sight? And what have I internalized? How can I kind of use my eyes in a, in a way that's like a, a tool? And then even when I'm looking at myself, am I also seeing myself as other people see me? It just feels like a hall of mirrors, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and this like intimate space of a bedroom and or a hotel and a lover, like who else is in the space with us? I think that's one of the many like centers of the book is these unanswerable questions. Um, because there's something about the feeling or idea of nakedness that is 
that is about stripping bare. And, and yet there's so many layers left even on that like naked flesh. And particularly thinking about that as like a racialized body. So I don't know if that, if that gets to what you're, you're asking. I think so. Well, let's stay with it a little longer. You, you, okay. You, you've talked about John Berger's notion from Ways of Seeing where he distinguishes between naked, nakedness, and nudity. The way he distinguishes these two, you say is useful. Do, do you remember what he means by the difference? I think it's about who's doing the looking. Like nudity has a bit more of, I don't know, grotesque or uh, voyeurism or it's less, I think, pure than nakedness in the way that he's trying to make a distinction. Well, if we think about it, it making a difference, who's doing the looking and then that you've said you're, you yourself are interested in what a loving gaze full of intelligence, history, joy, and pain can bring to a body. Um, recently, Rebecca Solnit posted a quote of John Berger's, also from Way of Seeing. And I, I'm curious what you think of it, especially because it, it isn't it isn't engaging with the racialized body. So I'd be curious to hear how much this speaks to what you're doing and how much it doesn't. Um, here's what, Solnit posted of Berger, quote, a woman must continually watch herself. She is almost continually accompanied by her own image of herself. While she is walking across a room or whilst she is weeping at the death of her father, she can scarcely avoid envisaging herself walking or weeping. From earliest childhood, she has been taught and persuaded to survey herself continually. And so she comes to consider the surveyor and the surveyed within her as the two constituent, yet always distinct elements of her identity as a woman. She has to survey everything she is and everything she does because how she appears to men is of crucial importance for what is normally thought of as the success of her life. Her own sense of being in herself is supplanted by a sense of being appreciated as herself by another. One might simplify this by saying, men act, women appear. Men look at women, women watch themselves being looked at. This determines not only most relationships between men and women, but also the relation of women to themselves. The surveyor of woman in herself is male, the surveyed female. Thus she turns herself into an object, and most particularly an object of vision, a sight. Yeah, I mean, that resonates. That I, resonates. I, I, yeah, I think I thought of, you know, instantly the first couple words of double consciousness and yeah. two boys. I mean, I think it's like a relevant way of thinking that applies to many people who are or who have been historically marginalized or uncentered. I mean, I would think that the same thing could apply to, for instance, like the black male. I don't know if you know this artist, Jordan Castile. 
I don't. Uh, she did a lot of paintings that were of black men and they were all nudes. And she decided to not show the genitalia and to have like a direct gaze and to kind of do these paintings in spaces that were intimate to the people who were sitting for her. All of these things that I think point to the problems, <laughs> um, essentially like, you know, oppression. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm trying to say that I think a lot of people, not just women, would be able to relate to the passage that Solnit posted of Berger. Well, one of the things that occurs over and over again in this collection is, is bathing, being bathed, bathing others, uh, from the poem, lotioning my mother's back to heaven as Olympic spa, which imagines Wanda Coleman and Gwendolyn Brooks at a Koreatown bathhouse together. Um, I have many questions about this. Part of me wonders if there is a almost religious or spiritual component to the washing or whether you are playing with the notion of one, this the, clearly a washing as loving. Um, I also love just more generally speaking, how democratically the book evokes Eros, not just with lovers and, and there are plenty of poems about lovers, but in these intimacies between cousins, between mothers and daughters, and naked poets in bathhouses too. Um, but also thinking about this Berger quote and the way he describes self-surveillance in a, a particularly gendered way, it feels like the there is something possibly instructive happening in these bathing scenes too, a knowledge being passed down not just the cousin teaching uh, the other, the eye of the poem, how to wash themselves, but Gwendolyn Brooks also showing the subject of the poem, how to tend to themselves by scrubbing dead skin with a coarse washcloth. Um, talk to us a little bit about bathing, about not just being naked, but being naked together in this hands-on way. Okay, so if we if we look at two girls bathing, which I think would have been the first poem that had bathing in it that I wrote, um, I wasn't yet thinking about the black feminine nude. I was just kind of going over a memory that stuck out to me. And it does have to do with this difference between nakedness and nudity or who's doing the looking because I remember my cousin, Carol, having like a, a different context for her naked body, which was in um, Accra in Ghana, where I have family. And being struck as a young person with how much I didn't have the same kind of freeness that she had and wanting to describe that moment. And I remember revising that poem and really it bringing to mind, you know, all of these personal memories, thinking about like my mother raising three children and putting us all in a bathtub and, 
um, kind of efficiently washing us. And then this other moment where I'm in a place that is uh, not the home I'm used to, but a different kind of home where people are bathing differently and where a lot of women that I love are just moving through space in a way that maybe I hadn't seen before. So there's that in terms of like that specific poem. And then when you were asking the question, I was also thinking about this bathing ritual that I did that has roots in, in Haiti. And like that idea of like water washing over, it's kind of like um, pouring over your head and onto the rest of your body. I mean, I hadn't thought about it in the way that you spoke in terms of like a spiritual experience in the book, but I did feel that in my life. And I do feel like what I want for the women in the book is that kind of like, love and baptism in that love and the kind of safety and freedom to feel vulnerable and unafraid and kind of protected. I was hoping you would read for us Lotiony, My Mother's Back and Heaven as Olympic Spa. Okay. Lotioning my mother's back. Because she lives alone and my hands reach where hers can't, she asks of me this favor. It is narrow and soft, my mother's back. When I massage in small circles, my mother circles her own mother, who is made of whatever makes a shadow thin and ungraspable. She wants to touch her. The bones under my mother's skin, rib cage, scapula, spine, feel like sharp winter rain. Between the clouds, I see a patch of sky, glimpse my aging body, moles like a flicker of paint, undersides of half-covered breasts, patches of eczema my fingers soothe with heavy cream. Is this what a laying on of hands means? Once my mother touched a garment and said, full of an awe, full of sadness. She touched this. Her skin was inside of this. My mother's back shines like the hands I wipe on the towel's face. Weren't miracles always beginning this way? Heaven as Olympic Spa, Koreatown, Los Angeles. Gwendolyn Brooks stood stark naked. I stared into her bespectacled eyes. Ms. Brooks showed me how to tend to myself by scrubbing dead skin with a coarse washcloth, rinsing the body's detritus down a common drain. My flesh was taut, loose, and dying. Even in paradise, I was dying. At first, this surprised me. Oh, the capsized boat of the body, Wanda Coleman sighed. 
We keep sailing even when we believe we're ashore. Coleman drifted to sleep on the heated jade floor. Clasping my spa-provided robe, I lay on my side beside her. Do the dead dream? I wondered to myself. Wrong question, Coleman muttered. I remembered sleeping beside my mother, touching her nightgown lightly, as if a gesture could restore the cord that in the beginning tethered us. As if I smelled her death in the satin scarf, keeping the plastic curlers in place, or in the Vaseline glossing her arms. In childhood, I pined for my mother, though she was there. Here, in the afterlife, I had no mind to search for her. I was freed from a loss that haunted me even before it occurred. Gwendolyn Brooks hummed a wordless song that stripped me of all longing. I untied the robe's stiff belt and walked amongst the nude women, my skin brushed smooth and silent. I was ordinary and motherless. Because I was not alone, my nakedness felt unremarkable. I didn't miss my mother. I didn't miss missing her. Been listening to Amakoja read from Bluest Nude. So to extend my wondering about the bathing, sometimes almost having this sacramental quality, or you even have the line, I just noticed for the first time, is this what a lane of hands is like in, in the first poem you read? We have a question for you from Mary Sheepist. Hello, Amma, it's Mary. Thank you for bringing Bluest Nude into the world. Your poems continue to astonish me. There's, of course, so much in this collection, but I've been thinking about your speech acts and the way your poems enact and interrogate different kinds of speaking, their relationship to address and answer, listening and singing. I'm especially noticing your use of vows. One that stays with me is, I vowed to feel as alive as the woman who, in a rite of spring, must dance herself to death. Could you say more about vows? And I wonder how close this statement is to your own beliefs when your speaker says, the vows we promise one another are veils through which we envision the future. I love that. Uh, has intentionality, perhaps through the use of articulated vows, been part of your own practice, Alma? Thank you, Alma. <laughs> Thank you, Mary, a beloved poet, a treasure. <laughs> oh. oh, my goodness. Hmm. I think in some ways, like there's a, there's a vocation of being a poet, which has to do not only with writing, 
maybe even more so with how one moves through the world and the kind of looking that a person does, a kind of like observation and, and study and feeling. Um, and that's a kind of aliveness that I think I must have vowed <laughs> when I walked down the street, um, I had this very kind of crystallized moment of feeling like I was a poet and I was whispering to myself, I am a poet. <laughs> I am a poet. I love that. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think it's part of that. There is some agreement. There's some agreement about being present and listening and perceiving. And then there's the part where you put it on the page, but 90% of it is, is moving through the world. Well, because of the intimacy and the sense of being among the speaker of the poems, family, the sense of being invited into a privacy, it's very hard for me not to think of the I in your poems as you. If I go to Lorraine O'Grady's essay that is is one of the um, inspirations for this book, Olympia's Made, Reclaiming Black Female Subjectivity, and we look at just before the epigraph that you begin your book with, the epigraph that starts with to name ourselves rather than be named, we must first see ourselves. There's a paragraph before that that leaps out to me where O'Grady says, what alternative is there really in creating a world sensitive to difference, a world where margins can become centers, to a cooperative effort between white women and women and men of color? But cooperation is predicated on sensitivity to differences among ourselves. As Nancy Harstock has said, we need to dissolve the false we into its true multiplicity. We must be willing to hear each other and to call each other by our true, true name. Holding, holding this in mind, the, this true, true name, and bringing us out of this false we into true multiplicity, I want to ask you about the I in your poems in relation to you and how, how you see it. Um, particularly because one way you could characterize this book is as a book about self-making, but perhaps not in the normal notion of what a self is. When you were talking with Maggie Milner, you felt like she encapsulated the essence of, of this book when she said, this is a book obsessed with the desire to see oneself clearly also to make language accommodate multiplicity and interdependency, the state of being both me and not only me. In Tupelo Quarterly, you ask, am I ever only myself or am I ever tied to the histories, intimacies, stereotypes, and ghosts that hover on top of and around my body? 
Is that what myself means? And you've said one of the animating questions of this book is, what is the role of art making in constructing subjectivity? So, Amakojo, how is the constructed eye in bluest nude, the art making that made this eye, related to you and your own subjectivity? Uh, Talk to us a little bit more about how you see the eye of your poems in relationship to your true, true self. Mm. I love that true, true self. Yeah, I think um, thinking about it with you, David Naiman, <laughs> that there's definitely an eye in the book that is close to me that feels like it's, it's mining my own life and personal history. And I guess I would also say, parenthetically, that when that eye is present, there's, there could also be a kind of switching that happens. Like if, if there's another person in the scene, I might give the eye what I perceive as their qualities and vice versa, mm-hmm. which is a way that I think for myself that I'm, I guess, trying not to write a memoir. <laughs> um, and it's obviously just for me that I, that I know like kind of what changes that I'm making, but it feels true. And then there's the eye that is not me, but could be, or is someone who is close to me. And I guess it's another way of thinking about what persona means. And maybe persona is like another way into this question about the eye, because there are so many figures that I inhabit, a lot of them being objects, like pieces of art. And in that imagining, I somehow, I guess, figure out like what's very personal and true to me that resonates with that figure. And it becomes less of a mask <laughs> in mm. that way. Yeah, there, there's certainly not masks that are so thick and strong in the book. I feel like the if someone is calling out my true, true name, I can kind of just see this cast of women like turning to look, you know, it's all of them. It's all of us um, whose name is being called. Staying with O'Grady and O'Grady's sense of a true, true self. And then all the black women together in this book, unclothed yet unseen by others other than themselves. I I wondered if and how this relates to another part of O'Grady's essay. Um, also, I was thinking of O'Grady's essay when you were talking about the difference in bathing in, of your cousin in Ghana versus mm-hmm. here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, she writes about how the female body is not a unitary sign, but like a coin, white on one side and not white on the other, but that the two bodies can't be separated or understood in isolation if one wants to understand the Western construction of the notion of woman. White is what woman is. 
not white is what she had better not be. She goes on to say that the not white woman is symbolically excluded from sexual difference, but rather their function is by their chiaroscuro, the shadows that cast the difference of white women into sharper relief. And then she goes on to talk about a book by Sylvia Arden Boone, Radiance from the Waters, that explores notions of feminine beauty in the Mende people of Sierra Leone, girls who go topless in the village, and even in urban areas, they go bare-breasted in the house, the schoolgirls taking off their dresses when they arrive home. And then O'Grady flash-forwards to the descendants brought here, originally in chains, and talks about witnessing black girls and women of all classes showering and shampooing with their bathing suits on, while beside them their white sisters were naked. She says, quote, Perhaps they have internalized and are cooperating with the West's construction of not-white women as not to be seen. She then connects this to the legions of black servants in the shadows of aristocratic portraiture, including Manes Olympia. Uh, these figures meant as two-in-one, Jezebel and Mammy, prostitute and female eunuch. Uh, quote, When we're through with her inexhaustibly comforting breast, we can use her ceaselessly open cunt. And best of all, she is not a real person, only a robotic servant who is not permitted to make us feel guilty. And she goes on to underscore that she's not talking about the Madonna and the whore, but the castrata and the whore, that Laura's place in Manet's Olympia is outside what can be conceived of as a woman. And the excision of her chaos is what stabilizes the West's construction of the female body. She gives the example of Judy Chicago's piece from the 1970s called Dinner Party, where 39 places are set at the table, and 36 of those places are set with versions of Chicago's famous vagina and recognizable slits have been given to figures that O'Grady describes tongue-in-cheek as sex bombs, the figures being Queen Elizabeth, Emily Dickinson, and Susan B. Anthony. And the only black guest represented at the table, Sojourner Truth, receives the only plate inscribed with a face, something Hortense Spillers comments on by saying, the excision of the genitalia here is symbolic castration. Chicago not only abrogates the disturbing sexuality of her subject, but also hopes to suggest that her sexual being did not exist to be denied in the first place. I've included too much here already, and this is only a scratches the surface of this essay. But thinking about construction of a black female subjectivity in your work and the ways that O'Grady is dealing with nakedness in Sierra Leone versus in the American locker room, I guess I was wondering if this brings up any further thoughts and if you could just more generally speak more about O'Grady's project in relationship to yours. Well, I think there are multiple binds and the kind of impossibility that O'Grady is describing 
I mean, to be everything and nothing, to be the kind of person that you don't see, wouldn't want sexually, and also the person that you are, you know, raping. Like it's, there's so many contradictions that are kind of inherent in the way that black women have been figured and like kind of shaped and presented that it does boggle the mind. And I think part of what she's trying to get at, is like, I guess if you point all of that out, maybe we can see how absurd this is. Mm. And if her audience in some ways is like white women in terms of this, the first audience for this paper, like for, for white women to be able to understand like they're involved deeply <laughs> in all of this kind of misconstruction. The breadth of this essay <laughs> it's so huge it it's like huge. it takes on psychology philosophy and i've read it many many times one of the kind of crystallizing moments for me is when she's talking about this idea of self-making and expression at the same time as like a critical consciousness is being formed or at the same time as we're also challenging oppression. And I don't know if this is a sidestep, David, but <laughs> it reminds me of Simone Lee's work because I guess I feel like we're at this point now as art makers where we don't have to list like the bullet points of the things that are wrong. Like we can just be like, see this yeah. <laughs> tome of evidence <laughs> of things that are not okay in terms of like representing the black female figure that we can actually turn toward ourselves and toward each other. And that the kinds of critiques that we have because we are intelligent breathing people can live on the periphery of, of the art. Like it exists. I was thinking about this actually in terms of a house, like, you walk into the house and then let's say that this house is my book <laughs> and there are these paintings that are there and this kind of furniture and figures. And there are all these things that are just there. There's no like big announcement. They're just there. And then the house is situated on a street, which is situated in a neighborhood, which is situated, you know, in a so-called nation. And I don't have to, as an artist, comment on all of that. I can just invite you to the house and you can look around at the paintings. And the paintings are just every day. They're portraits of Black women living their lives. That's my hope for the book. And I think the way that Simone Lee, who is a phenomenal artist, does that is by just presenting these like towering gorgeous figures who are definitely black and doing a ton of research but not really calling attention to 
the racist thing that might also be a part of what's inspiring making this image. Mm -hmm. That the existence of the art can be about itself, that we have maybe finally reached a place where that's possible. Yeah. I want to spend some more time with Simone Lee, but before we do, maybe sort of in light of the O'Grady talking about Judy Chicago's dinner party, um, could you introduce us to maybe orient us to a little bit and read the poem, poem after Betty Sars, the liberation of Aunt Jemima? Yeah. I, yes. And let me say about the Judy Chicago dinner party that, I mean, there's this whole phrase of seat at the table. So not only have you not given us many seats at the table, but then the kind of like, let's just say the thing that you're serving to everyone else, you give us something different, right? So being able to be aware as a maker that you're doing that feels really important. Mm -hmm. So this poem is after an assemblage piece by Betty Saar that was made in 1972. And there are actually many Aunt Jemima's, um, this kind of mammy figure that are portrayed in this assemblage. But the main kind of objective and thrust is that Aunt Jemima is being kind of excised from this domestic sphere and given the tools of a revolutionary. So she's holding a rifle. Um, there's also an image of her holding a baby on her hip. There's um, hand grenades that are there. So this liberation that the artist is given to a figure that has been constrained and also a figure that doesn't exist, a figure that's been imagined by a racist imagination. Um, and I, I really love the piece. I think it's striking and I really admire Betty Sarr's artistry. Um, and I also am like adding to this liberation, another kind of hope for the figure and the assemblage. Poem after Betty Sars, The Liberation of Aunt Jemima. What if Betty, instead of a rifle or hand grenade, I mean, what if after the loaded gun that takes two hands to fire, I laid down the splintered broom and the steel so cold it wets my cheek. What if I unclench the valleys of my fist and lay down the wailing baby? Gonna burn the moon in a cast iron skillet. Gonna climb the men who, when they see my face, turn into stony mountains. Gonna get out of the kitchen. Gonna try on my nakedness like a silk kimono. Gonna find me a lover who eats nothing but pussy. Let the whites of my eyes roll, roll. Gonna clinch my toes. Gonna purr beneath my own hand. Gonna take down my hair. Try on a crown of crow feathers. 
gonna roam the wide aisles of the peach grove, light dripping off branches like syrup, leaves brushing the fuzz of my arms. You dig? Gonna let the juice trickle down my chin. Gonna smear the sun like war paint across my chest. Gonna shimmy into a pair of royal blue bell bottoms. Gonna trample the far out thunder clouds, heavy in their lightness. Watch them slink away. Gonna grimace, gonna grin, gonna lay down my sword, pick up the delicate eggs of my fist, gonna jab the face that hovered over mine. It's easy to find the lips, surrounded as they are in minstrel black. Gonna bloody the head of every god, ghost, or swan who has torn into me, pried me open with its beak. Gonna catch my breath in a hunting trap. Gonna lean against the ropes. Gonna break the nose of mythology. Good night, John boy. Gonna ice my hands in April's stream. Gonna scowl and scream and shepherd my hollering into a green pasture. Gonna mend my annihilations into a white picket fence. Gonna whip a tornado with my scarlet handkerchief. Spin myself dizzy as a purple lip drunkard. Gonna lay down by the riverside. Sticky and braless in the golden sand. Ain't gonna study war no more. Ain't gonna study war no more. Ain't gonna study war no more. Listening to Amakojo read from Lewis Nude. So, so let's let's return to Simon Lee. Um, before we leave, well, the- David, can I add something? Yeah, I just think the poem. There is such a a violent contradiction about this domestic enslaved person who worked in the house that is characterized as a mammy and who really was the closest to the kind of physical assault and sexual violence in the plantations that existed on the land that we now live on. It's really um, beyond troubling to think about how these figures are, have been mythologized and how we think of them as real because then they become the faces of like, you know, pancake syrup and all these things. We think that that is actually real. And that is such a, um, I mean, the only word I can think of is violence. Yeah. And to kind of have this figure who's like stripped of their sexuality and then also hypersexualized, like it's just, uh, it's maddening. So when I think about, you know, what I would hope for her and for me, it's like this release from all of that. And even from the kind of waging that is our movement building, even the kinds of waging of of freedom fighting, I just, yeah, I want her to lay down. Well, taking this forward, this this idea of her being 
overdetermined and and erased simultaneously. Um, what is hidden, what is seen, how it is seen in relation to nakedness and nudity that both you and O'Grady are unpacking along the fault lines of race. We have to mention the sculpture on the cover of your book by Simone Lee. Um, She, like you and like O'Grady, talks about her work being about parsing the construction of black female subjectivity as as well as paying homage to a long history of black female collectivity, communality, and care. In this sculpture, interestingly, the top half is a bare-breasted torso, and the bottom half looks to me like a almost like a bell. Lee calls the bottom half skirted, and sometimes she makes it into a jug by adding a handle. But whatever we call it, it obscures or hides, perhaps protects the human form within it entirely. Uh, it We don't see any of the human form within it, um, whereas the top half is fully revealed. Her, her pavilion at the Venice Biennale, which you're at right now, is called Sovereignty, of which she describes sovereignty as self-governance. To be sovereign is not to be subject to another's authority, but also not to be subject to another's gaze, to become the author of one's own history. And I guess I was hoping you could speak to the cover for sure, but also the experience of being at um, the loophole of retreat in Venice um, and the sculpture that you've chosen which you've called the either the last poem in the book or the first poem in the book. And lastly, given that some of, of what's happening in Venice is, is available for us to watch online, if there is anything in particular you'd want to point us to. There is such, I think, wisdom and Simone Lee's work and... I really appreciated what you said about the protection. I think she does the same thing when she like kind of erases the eyes. There's something about the way she's using clay or bronze um, and earthenware to make these humongous, (laughs) ambitious, beautiful sculptures that is all about sovereignty. When I hear that word, I hear this um, clip of Toni Morrison speaking to Charlie Rose and talking about like, it talking about her own sovereignty and how she learned to write for herself without the white gaze through reading African writers and how so much of what Simone Lee is reaching back to is also about kind of art practices that are happening on the continent of Africa, as well as the deep South. So I not only feel in awe of her sculptures, but the way she is as an artist in the world is always about one, recognizing that even though she is the first Black woman to represent the United States 
at the Biennale, she doesn't like deserve that first, that many other people could have been first. Like that that first is about something outside of her <laughs> and outside of her lineage. Like that that's about um, racism and not about her. So that's number one. She acknowledges that in her confidence and her humility. And two, that she's going to bring as many people along as she can. And so she uh, convened around 700 mostly Black women to come from around the world to Venice for a loophole of retreat, Venice. And I was lucky enough to be a part of that congregation. And it was tremendous and beautiful. It happened on an island. And so it felt like we had a world to ourselves. And every speaker, presenter, artist who performed was just out of this world. I hesitate to recommend. <laughs> um, but I would say, I mean, one, one of the only poets who was um, presenting was Araceli Skrimai, who um, offered something up on day three of the conference. I would definitely watch that. Um, day three, also, there's a conversation between Lorraine O'Grady and Simone Lee. But I mean, there were so many beautiful moments. There's um, an artist, Grada Quilomba, who speaks about an installation that's in London at the moment that is kind of difficult to describe so I won't I won't even try <laughs> um but yeah I would say I would say if you begin to watch you will continue to watch yeah. because it's just it's a beautiful archive and and there were thousands of people watching as it was going on and sometimes there were things happening simultaneously and I would come home very late and then watch <laughs> things that I missed Holly Bass is a wonderful performer who's also a poet who did an incredible piece. I think it's called American Woman. Um, Chris, so, Christina yeah. Sharp's been oh my god has been sharing some clips of performances <laughs> on Twitter too that have been really mind blowing. Oh my gosh, Christina Sharp, Dion Brand. <laughs> That's the other part that there were um, so many writers specifically who whose work is so important to me, who were just there. Yes. Yeah. Dion Brand, Christina Sharp, Sadia Hartman, Kinesia Lebrin. It was, uh, it was, it was, um, it was like a vision, like stepping into a vision of a world that was true <laughs> as opposed to a dream. Uh, well, yeah. In, in the spirit of, of what you're conjuring for us and, and this notion of sovereignty. I wanted to ask about another thing that Simone Lee says. She says, in order to tell the truth, you need to invent what might be missing from the archive to collapse time, to concern yourself with issues of scale, to formally move things around in a way that reveals something more true than fact. 
this sentiment is one I've been particularly living with over the last year with the Crafting with Ursula series that is happening throughout 2022, because this is a belief that Le Guin held deeply that informs her notion of what the imagination is, something that makes us more human than the opposable thumb in her mind. Um, but it came up most in the conversation with Adrienne Marie Brown about science fiction and social justice, where we looked at the thoughts of Brown herself and also Walida Imarisha as those thoughts connected to the homage anthology that they co-edited around Octavia Butler and Afrofuturism. But I think of this when you say, when you want to remember something, you will close your eyes rather than take a photograph. The closed eyes, like the bottom half of Lee's sculpture, might contain the meaning more than what we try to capture through sight. It might be a different form of seeing. I think about the ways photography appears in this collection, also in relation to the end of Lee's film called Sovereignty, where she burns a paper mache version of a ceramic work called Anonymous that depicts the unidentified black female subject from a, a racist 1882 souvenir photograph taken by a white photographer. And that the burning of this photograph for her was, was a cathartic ritual for her. But I also think of a section of your title poem, Bluest Nude, that goes, In the news there was another incident. If I describe how the officer treated the young woman's body, I'm also describing the color of her body. Let me refuse simile. I do not wish to write it. So there's a lot of nakedness in this book, but I was hoping we could spend a moment with sovereignty in relation to this bottom half of the sculpture on the cover or with the closed eyes or with the refusal to describe, which feels like it the other side of, of the bluest nude. Yeah. I love that observation. I think their refusal is a kind of protection. I mean, in some ways it reminds me of just um, the filmmaker who made Conspiracy, which is the film that's a part of Simone Lee's exhibit, um, is Madeline Hunt Elrich. And she was talking during Loophole of Retreat Venice about how some of the subjects that she was filming had secrets and she didn't want to put them in the film mm -hmm. <laughs> and how in some ways there there's a, a fiction that's happening in um, this isn't in conspiracy it's in another film that she made and I love that idea of like the secret <laughs> and the secret and the refusal and the protection kind of being linked together there's also what doesn't need to be said because we've seen it so much the kinds of uh, brutality and just I mean the things that really should make us fall to the ground and just be subsumed 
with grief that we have become accustomed to watching, if not hearing about in terms of the brutality, violence and murder of indigenous people, black people, trans people. And knowing that, that we all have that already as an author, as part of my sovereignty, refusing to give you that image again, because I know you have it. It feels like a disruption to what we may have become accustomed to or which, what we may have to become accustomed to in order to just kind of wake up in the morning and continue on with the things that we're supposed to do. It feels like we should all just be doubled over, unable to move based on the level, the scale of inhumanity, ill treatment. And it's, it's, yeah, it should be uh, debilitating. And I think it is in our psyches in a lot of ways collectively. Um, but yeah, in that moment, in that poem, and I think in other, in other places, just refusing to say. In one way, it reminds me of something Evie Shockley says in your conversation with her and Danica Kelly. It was after you were describing that you loved residencies and how you would look out a window from your desk and write, and Evie saying how it was interesting that you were a poet who looks out a window, but that what you write is very different from what the typical poet who looks out a window writes, um, which might also speak back to two different ways of seeing. But it makes me think of this, of the line from the collection, my body is a lens I can look through with my mind. And I'm sure that you choosing not to describe some things is part of the sovereignty of this collection and part of why it feels so life-giving. But I also think even if you had chosen to center racism in the collection, that it would have still been a very life-giving collection because having attended your online book tour now with Sharon Olds, Ross Gay, it's clear that you have some quality in you that feels this way. You emanate something that your poems also do. I'm thinking of things Sharon Olds said about you in your event with her. Her preface of that event was just so <laughs> mind-blowingly amazing. Um, that the I in your book isn't entirely autobiographical, that you have these alternate representations of the I and of a of a people that allows us to move forward from our history and our art history, that the book is experimental, but down to earth. And the qualities she thinks of with it are clarity, mourning, tenderness, and truth, subtle truth and raw truth, both that the collection does not 
ask us for anything but his pure gift, that the poems are very strong, never making nice, but they are nevertheless nourishing. And I feel like this all describes your events, which felt so connected and emotionally vulnerable, joyful and and tearful, um, aware of an eye situated within community and the significance that these others who had gathered, that these others had gathered around your book, a book that itself had gathered the work of so many others. Um, I think about the poet Kinesia Lubrin's uneasiness with the lyric eye where in one talk she said she doesn't like how the lyric eye enacts a verticality of ego um, the hierarchy of knowing that it entails or the way it makes a singular sound a homogenizing sound and I feel like your poetry and you as a poet in the world is I guess feels to me like it's working against that sort of eye too it's not really even that this is a question. I think it's more of a thank you, but I, <laughs> but I wonder if this raises any thoughts for you. Um, returning to this question of the I and this question of, of sovereignty, which is not the same as like individuality. I'm reminded of something else that um, Madeline Hunt Overt said, which was that she reminds herself that Simone Lee, who is, they're often collaborators, um, used to make pots and like pottery, but like take out the bottom of it so that they could not be useful, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> and it reminds me of that because like useful, I think, to kind of elaborate on what Madeline shared can mean different things. Just like I can mean different things. Like we don't have to take what we have received that is like dripping with patriarchy and white supremacy and everything else as like what it is. The I doesn't have to be this kind of self-reliance myth. If I look at what I believe it means, I can't help but see so many people in an eye. I mean, it's like impossible not to. We didn't just get here by ourselves. At the least, there's two people <laughs> that are involved. So I, I think there's something about it redefining that um, as a part of sovereignty. So sovereignty meaning self-determination but also self-definition and the ability to define and describe and determine what is what is useful I mean is is art useful is beauty useful it could be something that is a little bit different than what we might have um, inherited so that's what, yeah, comes to mind. Well, earlier this year, before Ada Limon became our U.S. Poet Laureate, she was on the show. 
And I reached out to her to see if she might ask a question to you in this interview, but knowing full well that now that she is U.S. Poet Laureate, giving readings at the Library of Congress, surely inundated with publicity requests, that it wouldn't likely happen. And Vaughn, who handles her speaking engagements, agreed with me. But surely um, this speaks to Ada's esteem for your work, that which she also has featured on her podcast, The Slowdown, which she hosts, um, that she did record one. So here's Ada Limon. Hi, this is Ada Limon, and I just have a question for you. I feel like we don't get to celebrate enough, and I just wanted to know, I know how long you've been working, how hard you've been working on your poems, and I wanted to know how it felt to have your book put together, to see it in your hands, uh, to hold it for the first time. Yeah, I want to know more about that. Thanks. Thank you, Ada. And thank you, David. These little <laughs> Valentines are just amazing. <laughs> oh, I have been really astounded by how amazingly good it feels, not just to hold the book, but to have readers who care so much and are so thoughtful. And so many people have said, I, I'm reading the book and I'm reading a poem a day and I'm taking my time with it. And it's just been um, truly marvelous. So I, as you could tell <laughs> in these events that you were present for, I've just been um, overwhelmed by how much love I feel and how much gratitude. And again, it comes back to that I not being alone at all. Like I am the author of the book, but there's such a constellation of people some of whom I have never met, my ancestors that are just along with me. I mean, it feels so full of everyone. I've said this before, but I, I think about, you know, literature as a river and it's a river that I have been quenched by and I'm just humbled to offer something to that river. And I feel really grateful there's also this thing about the reader knowing so much because I'm bringing to my own reading of my own poem all of this information that is not on the page. These memories and I can kind of have this kind of film like I can kind of remember when I'm composing what I was thinking and the images that I'm think seeing and, and the reader is just coming fresh to the page and it is such a gift to be able to hear what they hear and to listen to what they see. It's, um, it's been remarkable. I feel very grateful and full. Yeah. I mean, one of the best things about your events is actually watching you and your capacity to take it in. It feels like we can see you in real time acknowledging the love 
and somehow, I mean, this is something that I really admire uh, in watching you is acknowledging it and taking it in. Mm. I loved it. I was hoping maybe we could hear primordial mirror. Primordial mirror. I was newly naked, aware of myself as a separate self, distinct from dirt and bone. I had not hands enough, and so finally uncrossed my arms. In trying to examine one body part, I'd lose sight of another. I couldn't imagine what I looked like during the fractured angles of sex. At the river's edge, it was impossible to see all of myself at once. I began to understand nakedness as a feeling. It was a snake, loose and green. It was the snake skin coiled and discarded. The shedding chained itself like a balloon ribboned to a child's wrist. Morning's birdsong reminded me of the sloughing off of skin. The rumored beauty of my husband's first wife never bothered me before. I missed the sensation of being fixed in amber. Then the hair in the comb, fingernail clippings, the red mole on my left breast grown suddenly bigger. I perceived my likeness in everything the lines on my palm as the veins of a leaf, my mind as a swarm of flies humming over something sugary or dead, my vulnerability as the buck I'd kill, then wrap myself inside, my hair as switchgrass, twine, a nest, a roving cloud, my every limb. Been listening to Amakoja read from Bluest Nude. Well, let's move from joy to blueness, Bluest Nude, uh, or the lines in the collection like the blue in a record's groove, blue, black, blue, the blue of a bruise, the blue you pick, the blue you choose, blue tears, the facts of history strip me blue, all the green and blue mixed to make my flesh. Talk to us about blue and the blues and in Bluest Nude. I mean, I'm tempted to start with the title. Um, Bluest Nude, I guess there's a chance it could be I am bluest when nude. And blue, I mean, it's been a color that captivated many artists' imaginations. Um, For me, certainly it has to do with a deepness, a richness, a sadness, the blues. And so as much as I was thinking about nakedness and vulnerability, I was also thinking about this color, which I'm very drawn to and which appears in so many artworks, which I think allows for a kind of tone or mood or emotionality that I wanted to also make portraits of. Well, perhaps in a similar way to the way blue is many things, 
And I think also the breast in this book is many things, not just a site of pleasure for a lover or a milk producing site of food and comfort, though it is these things also, but also less described things, less overdetermined things too. Your notion of woman is not tied to whether she has or wants children. And this is something that came up, I think, quite tenderly in your poetry off-the-shelf conversation where Helena de Groot becomes quite vulnerable about how her relationship with her partner is ending because she doesn't want children, something that he he knew from the get-go. But um, I'd love to hear anything about this element of the collection, a collection that is about, among many things, ancestry and futurity of generations of mothers and daughters, but also very much about this too, this other way of an equally valid way of being a woman. I cherish that conversation with Helena. And I also, I think about, I guess this goes back to what the reader brings because I wouldn't have necessarily named that as a thread in the book. Um, I think mostly because what I'm bringing as the author is like so full and clouded (laughs) with so many things. Um, It's hard for me to discern, but I know that I was writing through this question of motherhood and because it was a question in my life, like that was coming up in my poems and for years. And then when I had that moment at the desk in Florida, some of those poems felt resonant with what I then knew was becoming this book. Um, But it wasn't um, intentionally a theme, I should say. Mm. But I see it now that I've been talking to people about it. And it relates to this idea of, of redefinition it would be a sad world if all we had was what we have inherited. And to use that word of invention, invent that you brought up in terms of Simone Lee, like we can invent, I can invent my life, which I honestly am learning again and again and in new ways, (laughs) but I have that power. I, I think there's some kind of balance between recognizing what our constraints are and acting anyway. And so if one of the kinds of portraits of womanhood is mother, and if it is kind of an insistent and persistent portrait, how can I exist as a woman outside of that? And the answer is not, it's not that difficult. I, I just have to move forward living my life making choices that I think support my values and who I want to be in the world. And, and I, it's not, not complicated, (laughs) Um, but I don't sense the kinds of, I guess, dead ends that may be projected onto me. I can see over the wall. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I, I would love to spend the rest of our time together talking about some questions of process and craft. First, we have a question from Danica Kelly that sort of can start the way for us. <laughs> this is Danica Kelly and Ama, I have a question for you. In She Said and Burying Seeds in the book, uh, those two poems in particular, although there are a number of poems that have epigraphs that are obviously taken um, from sort of similar sources, you use archival documentary material. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your approach uh, to incorporating uh, the testimonies and interviews into the poems and how you approach shaping them. Uh, I, I feel like this, again, is like perhaps clearest than she said and burying seeds. And I would just love to hear uh, more about that. I love you, Danica. I think Danica knows this, but there was some point um, way before I knew that this book was this book when I had been working on what I thought was going to be my first book. And I had a lot of time left in a residency. And so I decided I really wanted to write kind of in a different way, not a lyric, but thinking about documentary poetics. And I was looking at Zong, I was looking at C.D. Wright. And I also just knew that I wanted to write about the painter Artemisia. And I didn't know exactly what that meant yet. I didn't know if that meant I would be writing a classic poem or what but the poems she said came from that impulse to work in a different way which is not uncommon for my practice and to really think about how to use found text and so I was reading um, a really thick book <laughs> and trying to figure out what kind of documentary text I could use and I read the court transcript from the rape trial that Artemisia Gentileschi's father um, sued the rapist. And I didn't feel comfortable using any of her language because she basically was put on trial. She was also basically tortured. She had this kind of very archaic cord wrapped around her hand that was like, it was a brutal experience in many different levels. I didn't feel comfortable using her, her words, but there were these footnotes from the transcription that I felt could be a way into a poem. And where the majority of the poem is using those footnotes um, and kind of reordering them and putting them in conversation with other fragments, including the Senate Judiciary Community or Committee um, testimony that Dr. Christine Baisley Ford gave in 2018. So that's the story behind She Said, which is actually a poem that I haven't been asked a lot of questions about yet. And then 
with bearing seeds. Similarly, I, I knew I wanted to write a poem for Betty Shabazz, which is in the poem. And I just started doing research and that one was a bit more straightforward in terms of lifting quotations that I felt like made sense for the poem. But I, I guess if I could zoom out a little bit, I think craft wise, there's something so beneficial about just reaching into the unknown and like moving towards something that it is not my inclination or my habit or my quote unquote nature as a writer. And I remember very clearly and I, and one with others by CD Wright is such an important text in my life. Um, but I remember very clearly trying to make a space for different kinds of poetics and, and spending time really like collaging with that poem that is essentially about sexual assault and also the kind of silencing and the kind of echoes that I was hearing. So while I was writing that poem, I was listening to, you know, news footage of Trump saying, why did she wait so long? And then I'm looking at the transcripts of this rape trial and seeing echoed over centuries, the same kinds of questions, the same kind of victim blaming. So yeah, that's, that's part of the story of how I got to those documents. And it's a way of working that I would love to return to. You've said multiple places about your poetry more generally, I think, in this collection not necessarily specific to the documentary poetics of these two, that you wanted to create poems that were like paintings, which at least to my ear sounds different than a poem that is engaging with a painting or about a painting. What, what does that mean uh, to write a poem like a painting? I guess when I hear that question, I just, I imagine a kind of lushness um, I mean, I guess in some ways that it's saying like, I, I wanted to move into or walk into a landscape that I had dreamt that, you know, is what I imagine painters <laughs> are kind of doing in their, in their minds, um, using the tools at their disposal to make something that could be resembling of reality, but it could also be not. And I guess there's something about the texture and, and beauty and tone that I, that I think is something that music and poetry and painting have in common. Like there's, a way that one can behold a piece of art and still not know so much. And the same is true for poetry. Clearly we can listen to a piece of music over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. 
I think I was also thinking about the actual space of a museum. It's wonderful that we're in a time where you can go to a museum or you can go to an exhibition and be surrounded by um, black figures. Like going to the Carrie James Marshall exhibit, I think it's hard to describe how powerful and meaningful that is. And I just wanted to make something where when you enter the house, you're looking around and there are all these paintings mm -hmm. that are poems. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. Well, you've talked in multiple places in really interesting ways about risk in your poetry. For instance, in your conversation with Ross Gay, who, as an aside, I just want to describe the way that he described your book in that conversation. He said, this is a grown-ass book, florid, with mystery, comfortable sitting with uncertainty and the unknown, full of adult desire. In this conversation, you talk about how you're attracted to wild poets, poets that push your writing. And you mention Bridget Begin Kelly, Terence Hayes, Diane Seuss. In the Massachusetts Review, you talk about two types of writers that you read, the ones you can't live without and the ones you read during the act of writing. The former are writers like Lucille Clifton, C.D. Wright, Sharon Olds, Toni Morrison. The latter, the ones you read while you're writing, are people you consider riskier than you are. Again, you say wilder and you read them while you're composing. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I just have this image of myself like running after this <laughs> motley crew of poets. <laughs> um, I, I just think there are poets who document and kind of record. Um, and that's like a necessary, a necessary kind of poet. And then there are poets that are so strange and following their own drumbeat and unapologetic and wild. And I am really drawn to surrounding myself with them while I'm writing. I think, you know, there's, some writers who say like, I can't read while I'm writing. I don't want to be influenced. I am absolutely not that kind of writer. I need other writers while I write and I need to pursue them. I need to like chase after them. It is a longer line. It's, it's um, a kind of self-revelation. It's uh, even kind of a syntax like Carl Phillips, like things that feel just out of reach. And when I can move toward it, my voice is kind of changed in a very, I would say a slight way, <laughs> but it's an interesting shift. I just have this image of like, 
what if I was on an island by myself and I had no other poets to like draw from? I think I would be pretty bored with what I was writing. <laughs> I really do need this, um, this Motley crew. And I'm really grateful for the ways that they, because you can't ever kind of lose your voice as a writer, I don't think. Um, but it's like in the stretching, in the reaching towards, in the kind of like a bit of discomfort, I can change the sound of my voice. And I like that. It's interesting to hear myself in that way. I think, again, with this like I, because the I, because all of them are also me, like, and I can kind of tap into the parts of me that are like them when I'm in conversation with them in this way. So always just like surrounding myself with writers and books as I write. And also, um, I think there's something about, I guess it's the gratitude that I feel for being a reader not only being a poet, for being able to love poetry and for the kind of like flexibility that a poem can carry over years and decades and decades. Because I've been reading some of the same poets for most of my life and they're still giving to me. Well, to stay with this question of risk, in your interview in The Common, when you were talking about revising, you say that when you revise is the time when you ask, what am I willing to risk? And that you want to risk something in every poem, that there needs to be blood in it, something at stake. And if there isn't, then you revise the poem toward putting something on the line. Another way you put it is that you want to be honest in a way that includes a willingness to be vulnerable, ugly, and misunderstood. Quoting Audre Lorde, who says, I have come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal, and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood. And then the interviewer asks a great question. Do you have any suggestions for making riskier revisions? And I wondered if you could speak to any strategies beyond reading wild poets, um, questions you ask yourself or ways you, you put your poems to a, some sort of litmus test to know that you're, you're risking yourself. As I mentioned, Terrence Hayes was my thesis advisor and he also is a reader of my poems. And sometimes he'll just say more. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes when I'm kind of coaching myself through revision, becoming my own best reader, I'm telling myself to share more, to give more. So more may be a one word prompt for thinking about this question. I think I'm specifically thinking about what feels like a risk to me, which just to clarify is not about um, 
necessarily about like disclosure. It is maybe answering this question of so what? I mean, what here is like putting myself on the line? And that seems quite relative. <laughs> There, you know, there may be different kinds of personalities that would answer that question differently. But for me, I just think, am I keeping too much or am I truly sharing? What about this doesn't make me look good? <laughs> or doesn't make the speaker look good? I mean, that's, yeah, that's a genuine question that, I've, that has led to adding a line in a poem. I think one knows. It's obviously a self-examination. It's not something that, I don't know if I would take that feedback from anybody else, mm. but it's something that I know, um, whether or not I'm being honest, whether or not I'm putting something on the line. It's something that I know and it can be measured by me. So I think asking myself, what more is there? What does this matter? can get me a little bit closer to the blood that I was talking about. Yeah. Well, let's go out with a final reading. I was hoping maybe we could go out with a reading of Blueprint. Blueprint. As I lay on the prickly grass, grasshoppers chattered in my hair. I stroked the ground like a beard. No one sang. The whole sky was watching. It's animal piss in the dye pot that bakes indigo blue. Blue seeped out of me, but I wanted to forge it myself. I was obsessed with making. The yellow leaves browned. The sugar pine needles refused to shed. I couldn't get the pigment right. It kept turning to mud. I had attempted this before making wine from another's body, stamping and stomping my grape-stained feet. When I rose, I left the print of a woman behind. I noticed the pear tree, how it gave without question. I asked anyway, was asking again, collecting broken seashells and tiny elephant figurines. I needed a herd of blue. I soaked black beans for the color they left. My blue was a habit, a kind of river I stepped into, sometimes crossed because it held the sky so perfectly. I swung the ax. I swam with my arms. I hammered nails, though crookedly. Timber was my sacrum. Timber were my metatarsals. Timber was my lungs, pink flesh. Timber was my skull. I was a blueprint, blue on blue, mapless, but for those warm bones and my red heart barking. And when I turned without making my skirt a basket, when I turned from all the fallen pears, the sky was full of shaking, wet, with river water. It wasn't rain that fell. Whatever it was, I collected in the cups of my hands. Thank you so much, Amakojo, 
for David Naiman. <laughs> David Naiman, your host. That's what I call you in my head at home. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> oh my god. I'm I'm so happy to play my small role in getting this book into people's hands and hearts, Ama. I am so grateful for you in this world. So please let me say <laughs> <laughs> the work you do. Okay, so this is something I happened upon, like just by grace yesterday, this um, printmaking workshop studio space and I had no idea what I was walking into but I kind of knew that I wanted to see what was going on in there and it was like a magical space there were like puppets hanging and like spools of twine and reams of paper and like all of these prints and color and it was gorgeous and and then I was watching the people work and I, I realized that there is something so remarkable and mesmerizing about the kind of time and attention that is poured into making and the kind of time and attention that you pour into these interviews and conversations. It is unbelievably precious. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm in awe of it. I really am. And the hours that you give in order to give us something, it's just, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alma. That's, oh, right. I, that's so I, moving I so, to hear. Oh, it's so true. It's mm-hmm. so true. Thank you so much. And I'm so happy you get to go feed yourself. You have your residency coming, yeah? I have my residency coming. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) (laughs) 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 Oh. Well, we've been talking today with Ama Kojo, the author of Bluest Nude from Milkweed. You've been listening to Between the Covers, and I'm David Naiman your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Ama Kojo, you can find more of Ama's work at amakojo.com. For the bonus audio archive, Ama contributes the reading of three different poems that exemplify three different ways to approach ekphrastic poetry, discussing each one. This joins bonus material from Jory Graham, Dion Brand, Rosemary Waldrop, Nikki Finney, Natalie Diaz, and many others. And this is just one possible reason to join the Between the Covers community as a listener, supporter. Join our brainstorm of future guests. Receive the supplementary resources with each conversation. Choose from a wide variety of other potential 
advertisements, whether becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to any number of gifts and collectibles from past guests, out-of-print chapbooks by Ursula K. Le Guin, writing consultations, a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers, or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Alice Evelyn Yang in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.